Well, good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful day that God has given us, isn't it? Good to see you today in God's house. Uh, before we get started, um, I think I want us to take a moment and pray uh, for something that I know is on um, all of our hearts, and that is what's happening uh, in the Ukraine. And as God's people, we are called uh, to lift up uh, people around the world uh, to care about situations that may be very far from us. And so we, before we get into our study of God's word this morning, let's take that moment. Would you bow your heads? We'll pray together. Father God, you are the God of peace and the God of justice. And so we pray to you for the people of Ukraine today. Lord, we pray against evil. We pray for peace. We pray, Lord, for the laying down of weapons. Lord, we pray for those who are living in fear right now that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. Lord, we pray for those in leadership, those who have power over war or peace. We pray for wisdom and discernment and compassion to guide their decisions. Lord, we pray that evil would be defeated. Lord, above all, we, we pray for all of your precious children, those who love you, serve you, know you, those who are at risk, those who are fearing for their lives. We pray that you would hold them. We pray that you would protect them. And Lord, we pray all of these things, trusting in you, asking in the name of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, I want to welcome you to the third final week of our series, Gospel. And if you've been with us the last two weeks, you'll remember that we have worked to get the gospel down, to understand it better, to be clear on what it is. We, we've talked about how we can share the gospel with those um, who need to hear it. And so today, we're talking about the third thing, which is living it. We're going to be asking, well, how can we live out the gospel in our lives? And for some people, this is kind of an odd question because some people think the gospel is just the thing that you accept to get into the kingdom of God. They think the gospel is just the thing that you tell people so that they can get into the kingdom of God. But we've been talking about how that is not what the Bible teaches. We've talked about how the gospel, which is indeed the proclamation that God saves sinners solely by his grace. Um, he saves them by the life and death and resurrection of his sons. We, we've talked about how the gospel is not just the entry requirements into God's kingdom. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. Rather, it's the A to Z. And we've talked about how we are to live by grace and faith from first to last. And maybe you could say it this way. The gospel is not only the means of our salvation, it's also the means of our sanctification. You see, through the gospel, we are born again. And through the gospel, we are conformed into the image of Christ. In other words, as Martin Luther said, we never move beyond the gospel. So how does that happen? Just really practically, how do we not receive the gospel of grace by faith and then go on to, to live like we, we need to earn God's favor by our performance? 
How, how do we not slip back into the default mode of the human heart, which I've told you is always self-justification? How do we realize the, the tendency we all have in our hearts to go back that way? And how do we fight against that with the truth and with the power of the gospel? Now, Romans 1.16, as we've looked earlier, tells us the gospel itself is power. And we know the Bible teaches that we are justified, which means we are made righteous um, by what Jesus has done. But it's, but it's beyond that. It's beyond when we are forgiven. Uh, more than that, in the gospel, we receive the righteousness of Christ. So God looks at us and God sees his son. In other words, Christ was treated as we deserve so that we can be treated as he deserves. And what we've been saying all in this series is that should change everything about our lives. Everything. Say everything. I mean, not just a few things. It should change everything. The gospel should change our motivations, why we do what we do. The gospel should change our choices, what we do. The gospel should change everything. And, and, and so therefore, the more the gospel is changing us, the more we are living the gospel. And that's what God wants for you and for me, for all of us. I want you to turn to the book of Titus, chapter two, uh, verses 11 through 14. This is one of Paul's letters. And what we're gonna do today is dig down deep and we're gonna see some insights about how the gospel can transform us to the very core of our beings and out of that how we can actually daily live the gospel out. And here's what Paul writes, wonderful words. Listen to what the word of God says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, there's one thing in particular I want you to see in these verses, and it, it focuses in on what we're gonna be talking about today. Paul calls his listeners to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. He calls them to live self-controlled lives, but I want you to notice how Paul tells them to do this. Don't miss it. He says that it is the grace of God that brings salvation which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God that teaches us that. If you were to keep reading in the book of Titus, you go a few verses later, Titus 3, 5, Paul explains what he means by the grace of God when he writes this. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So think about it. The gospel is how we say no to temptation. Have you ever thought that. The gospel is what teaches us to live godly lives. The gospel is what teaches us to be self-controlled. It, it teaches us to be people who are eager to do what is good. In other words, life change happens through the gospel, and it's not through doing good deeds. It's, it's not through you just trying harder to be a better person. It's, it's not through behavior modification. It's always 
through the gospel. So we live the gospel. But you still might be asking, well, how does that work? Well, that's what we're gonna do today. I want you to see three steps to living the gospel, and they're not necessarily sequential steps. They're just things we need to be doing in our lives, and they're all about applying the gospel. Here's the first one I want you to see, and you can write this down in your message notes. Apply the gospel to restructure your motivations. So the gospel, when we truly grasp it and when we begin to allow it to teach us, it reaches down into the deepest parts of who we are, and if we let it, it will restructure our motivations. Why why do you obey God? I, I don't want you to give me the biblical reason, that's not what I'm asking right now. I'm asking, why do you obey God? Have you ever really stopped to examine your heart and ask yourself, why? Do you ever look at your motivations? If you were here two weeks ago, you remember we, we talked about how you can be a very good person and you can do the right things for all the wrong reasons. I mean, just think of some of the ways you can say no to godliness. You, you can say uh, to, no to ungodliness. You can say no because I'll look bad. We've all done that. You can say no because like, I'll be excluded from the social circles I wanna belong to. You can say no to ungodliness because then God won't bless me. I bet you did that this week. You can say no because you know, I'll hate myself in the morning and I'll have really bad self-esteem. Now I want you to just think about those things, all common. I bet you every single one of us here has done every single one of those things. We've all had those motivations in our life. And I want you to see, I want you to think about how every one of these motives are really just expressions of fear and pride. They're expressions of the very things that lead to sin. In other words, you are just using the heart's self-centered impulses to keep you compliant to external rules without really changing the heart itself. In other words, you can do all those things and you're not really doing anything out of love for God. You're just using God to get things. Self-esteem, prosperity, blessing, social approval. And if that's true, that means your deepest hopes and joys rest in those things, not in God. Uh, The colonial era pastor, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, uh, wrote a book called The Nature of True Virtue. And in his book, he, he said there are two basic forms of moral behavior. He said that whenever you see someone doing good, in other words, whenever someone is like giving money to the poor or helping a little old lady across the street or you know, telling the truth, whatever it is, doing anything good, there are always two different motivations. And he, he calls them common virtue and true virtue. And what I want you to see this morning is to restructure your motivations, you need to understand the difference between common and true virtue. Say, well, what's common virtue? Well, think about lying. Think about lying, okay? Most people are honest either out of fear or pride, right? Fear, they're afraid of what will happen if they lie. Some of you are not going to lie over the next few weeks on your tax return because you're afraid the IRS would catch you. And if you knew they wouldn't catch you, come on, you'd lie. You don't have to say amen, okay? I'm not trying to out anybody here. But I know, I know it's true. 
We're just afraid. We're, we're afraid uh, of being caught. Or maybe, maybe it's not the IRS. You're just afraid God will punish you. There's like a religious and a secular form of that fear. But again, the motivation is fear. You know, better not lie or you'll get caught. Better not lie. Your whole life will blow up. Or a second reason could be pride. You can, you can say, and often we do, I don't want to be like those terrible people who, who lie. I'm better than that. And so out of pride or out of fear, you can be an incredibly uh, truthful person. Jonathan Edwards calls this common virtue. And he, he says it, this is not all bad. In fact, he would say that's how most of the people in the world are moral. I mean, just think how horrible the world would be if people in general didn't feel the need to tell the truth for whatever reason. So most people, you know, they, they do feel it's right to tell the truth, even if it's out of fear and pride. And, and we can, you know, concede that overall common virtue is a helpful thing. But, but choosing to do what's moral out of these motivations will never address the fundamental cause of evil in the human heart, which is always self-centeredness. See, in common virtue, you restrain the heart, but you don't change it. In fact, instead of actually dealing with the heart's self-centeredness, you're appealing to it. You're using it by saying, you'll be in trouble if you lie, or you'll be a wonderful person if you tell the truth. So here's the conclusion. Most people are moral out of either fear or pride. And ultimately, people who are moral out of fear or pride are are really just being moral for their own selves. They may do the right thing, which is better than not, but at the deepest level, they, they do it so God will bless them, that's the religious version, or they, they do it so they can think they're good people, virtuous people, that's the secular version. They're not doing it for God's sake, they're not doing it for goodness sake, they're doing it for their own sake. See, the fundamental self-centeredness of our hearts not only remains intact in this, it just gets stronger. The more moral we are, the more self-centered we're becoming in, in many, many ways. It's, it's why so often you find people who are so very good and yet they're so full of hypocrisy. It grows right out of this. See, you may lie out of fear because you're afraid someone will find, or will find out, will, will disapprove, and, and you'll look bad, or maybe it's pride. You'll feel they don't deserve the truth. You know, like Jack Nicholson, you know, they can't handle the truth. That's pride. I'm better than them. But either way, it, when you nurture honesty out of fear or pride, it's, it's a house of cards. It's coming down. Some temptation is going to come into your life. It will sooner or later, and this time it won't pay to tell the truth, and all of a sudden you'll do that thing that you said you'd never do. And afterwards, you'll say, how would that happen? That, that's not me. I wasn't raised to do that. Yes, you were. In fact, it's kind of a side note, and there's a lot more to be said about this, but parents, if, if this is how you tell your children to obey, if you appeal to the fact that they carry your last name, yeah, a lot of us have said that, right? You're a, don't do that. I want you to think about what you're actually appealing to in their heart instead of the gospel, instead of the gospel. 
See, when, when, you, when you do that, you, you end up at some point sooner or later giving in because nothing has been done about the self-centeredness of your heart. You're, you're in this, even trying to be good, you're just using uh, your needs for love and approval and power. You're getting those things to be met through morality. And if the morality doesn't deliver, sooner or later you'll find yourself doing those things that thought they would never do. You never thought you would do that. And yet, that's what you've been training your heart to do. Now, Edwards says, well, what is true virtue? And it's simply this. It's when you're honest or when you tell the truth, not because it makes your life better, but because you are smitten by the beauty of God who is himself the truth. You love truth-telling because that's who God is. It's for his sake, not yours. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through the gospel, do you see? If you understand the gospel, it destroys pride because the gospel says you were so bad, Jesus had to die for you. But the gospel also destroys fear because the gospel tells me he was so glad to die for me. Even while I was his enemy, even when I was in rebellion against him. And so that means to me, even when I sin, even when I fail, I know he must still love me if he loved me that much. So the gospel destroys fear. Why? Because the gospel says you're loved. The gospel destroys pride. Why? Because the gospel says you're a sinner. You see, the gospel just eats away at the roots of sin. And so now if I'm living out the gospel and I understand my motivations, I tell the truth, not because I'm afraid, but because God loves me. So who cares what they think about me? And I tell the truth, not because I'm proud, but I realize I have no right to withhold truth. It is only the gospel, God's grace, that defeats our self-centeredness. And any time we try to live by being good, which is moralism, you're gonna find this happening. You're gonna swing between the pendulums of pride and self-hatred. You know, sometimes you're gonna do a good job. You're gonna live up to your standards and then you're gonna get proud. Have you ever noticed when you do that and you get kind of on this end? Pride goes before a fall, right? You know, and that's what happens. We're, we're proud, we're living up to our standards, but that, lead, that pride leads to a fall and we fail and then we hate ourselves. Either way, do you understand? Either way, I'm focused on me. It's all about me. And only the gospel works on both sides of self-centeredness. It's in the gospel that we are both humbled out of our pride and we are loved out of our self-loathing. Only in the gospel. I mean, (laughs) if I'm living out the gospel, how do I remain in pride? Because I'm so bad, Jesus had to die for me. In the gospel, how can I hate myself? Why? Because I'm so loved. Jesus was glad to die for me. It is only the gospel that deals with the fundamental cause of evil, which is the heart's self-centeredness. And what I'm trying to help you see is that far too many people, maybe even many of us, are being moral and being good, and we're coming to church, but the real reason we're doing it is for us, not God. And we do that because we don't get the gospel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a British pastor in the uh, 19th century and told a story, one of his famous stories, and it kind of went like this. He said, once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he, he took it to his king and he said, my king, 
This is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart. And so as he turned to go, the king said to the gardener, he said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. And I own a plot of land, it's right next to yours, and I wanna give it to you freely as a gift so that you can guard it all. And the gardener was amazed, and the gardener was grateful and delighted. He went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who watched all this. And he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something And so the next day, this nobleman comes before the king, and he's leading in to the king's presence, this handsome black stallion, and he bows low, and he says, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you, king, as a token of my love and my respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, thank you, and he took the horse and he simply dismissed the nobleman. The nobleman walked out, he was perplexed, and the king called and said to him, let me explain. The gardener yesterday was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You see, unless you understand the gospel, When you feed the poor, you're you're feeding yourself. When you clothe the naked, you're you're clothing yourself. If we are giving to God uh, things in the hope that they will earn us blessings or they will earn us heaven, then we're really not doing it for him. We're doing it for ourselves. And it is only an experience of God's grace in the gospel that changes that. Do you understand, without the gospel, all your virtue, all your goodness is a sham. It won't last because it's really in the end all about you and as you nurture your self-centeredness, the truth is you are becoming more sinful all the time, the more good that you do. And I wanna ask you, is this a new idea for you? This may be something you've never heard before and you've never even stopped to kind of grapple with that. If that's the case, I hope that you will let it sit and I hope you will kind of let it sink in, soak into your mind. I hope you will ponder it. I think you will find that it begins to unlock a lot of things in your life that you'll understand better than you did before. You know, the gospel, if it's truly believed and lived, it, it removes our neediness. We're so needy, aren't we? We have all these needs. We, we want to be appreciated all the time and we get our feelings hurt if we're not appreciated. We want to be respected. Some of us, we have a need to control. Do it all our way. Or control by everything in our lives going well. Uh, the need to have power over others. And all of these deep needs continue to control your life only because this idea of the glorious God who delights in you with all his being is just that. An idea. Your heart doesn't really believe it. And so what you do is you operate in default mode, which we have been saying again and again is always only self-justification. See, what Paul is saying is if you really want to change, you must allow the gospel to teach you, that is to train you, to to discipline you, to, to coach you. And this is going to happen over a period of time. No one gets this all at once. Don't be discouraged. 
You have to learn to let the gospel speak to your life. You have to let the learn the gospel argue with you and confront you and challenge you and tell you where you're wrong. You have to let it sink down deep into your heart so that it restructures your very motivations, why you do the things you do. So let's talk about that. And that's the second thing I want you to say to see to go further into this. We, we need... Um, if we're going to live out the gospel, to apply the gospel to specific areas of hearts and life. So I want to look at another passage of scripture. This is in another one of Paul's epistles, the, the book of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. And here's what it says. Paul writes, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now we don't have time today to go into depth um, on the background of this account, but I'm gonna summarize it by saying this, and maybe you know the story. Peter, because of what God had shown him earlier, you can read about in the book of Acts, because of the gospel, Peter had begun in his life to set aside the racial, what we would call the racial attitudes common to Judaism at that time. And he lived that way until certain people that Peter wanted to impress showed up. And so he changed, and, and Paul saw this. He saw Peter's hypocrisy. He, he confronted him. But here's the point. I want you to notice how. Paul doesn't say, Peter, you are breaking the no racism rule. I mean, he could have said that. There is a no racism rule. The Bible teaches that. What he actually says to Peter is this. You are not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, the Greek word here, um, you might kind of literally translate like this, ortho-walking. We know what ortho means, right? It's about something that's straight, getting straightened out. Um, you're, you're not walking in alignment with the truth of the gospel. In other words, he's saying there's like this line that goes out from the gospel, and we have to align ourselves with it. So according to Paul... Now, the gospel is not just a set of teachings that save you. It's a shaping influence on everything you do. And so what he's saying to Peter is this. How could you, how could you have this sense of racial superiority if you believe the gospel? Don't you know that we're all sinners saved by grace? And if we're sinners saved by grace, all of us, that means all of us are equal before God. So here's what he's doing. Do you see it? He's applying the gospel to Peter's racial attitudes. So with that in mind, how how does, very specifically, the, the gospel teach us, as we 
look back in Titus chapter two, to say no to ungodliness. How does the gospel change our hearts and lead us into righteousness? I'm just gonna give you uh, four examples. I mean, we could do this all day tomorrow, all through next week, but this will give us a start. Maybe you can follow up on some more examples in your your life group. The first one I wanna give you is suffering. So when bad things happen to you, if the gospel isn't at the core of your being, you will either fall into a I hate thee or I hate me kind of mindset. In other words, you'll be tempted either to say to God, how dare you do this to me? How dare you let this into my life? Or you may think, I must be very, very bad. I just brought this on myself. Why? Well, if you think I'm a good person and God is loving, then you will think God owes me a good life. You will think God should fix all my problems. That's what he's there for, right? On the other hand, you might, as you suffer, fall into self-loathing. I hate me. And sometimes, this will reflect some of you here right now, there are people who profess faith in Christ, but they're not really living a consistent life. You know, they're kind of indulging in sin. They're, they're maybe coming, not coming to church. You know, they don't hardly read their Bible or won't hardly pray. And then suddenly bad things happen and they start to hate themselves and they start to say to themselves, I'm being punished. And it's because you're not living up to your own standards. You're saying, I hate me. But you see, the gospel keeps us from both of those things. The gospel approach to suffering is so different. On the one hand, the gospel humbles us out of being mad at God. Why? Well, think about this. Jesus, the very best person who ever lived, suffered terribly, right? You say, well, I've lived a pretty good life. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died. He suffered And he suffered and died, why? Because God loved us, that's the gospel. So that demolishes the idea that good people should have good lives, bad people, bad lives. You're humble because you realize if God gave me what I really deserved, you know, sometimes people think I'm being punished for my sins. Are you kidding me? God's standards aren't that low. If you were being punished for your sins, You wouldn't be here to complain about being punished for your sins. You'd be gone, right? And besides, if if, if God himself was willing to get involved personally in terrible suffering out of love, if God coming into this world uh, still suffered, what in the world makes us think we'll be exempt? Are you better than Jesus? On the other hand, so the gospel, it humbles us, but on the other hand, the gospel affirms us out of false guilt or self-hatred. See, Jesus suffered and died, and he did for you. And that means whatever problem, suffering, pain you're experiencing right now, it cannot be like judgment for your sins. It might be a wake-up call, but it cannot be retribution because your retribution fell on Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. That 
Do you see how that affirms us and lifts us up? It shows us the value God puts on us. And so whatever the reasons that you are going through suffering, could be a million reasons, one of them cannot be God's paying you back. See, if we realize we're accepted in Christ, it is then and only then that suffering will both humble us and strengthen us rather than embitter us and weaken us. Jesus suffered not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we might become like him. And that's a gospel approach to suffering. See, here's the reality. Since none of us are living exactly in line with the gospel because we all still sin, amen? Since none of us are living exactly in line with the gospel, what you're gonna tend to find in your life is that when suffering comes, you're gonna be pulled to one side of this or the other. And as you do, you're going to find for yourself exposed the motivations, the leanings of your heart, how your heart is not operating in a gospel paradigm. And God can use that to bring you back in line to the gospel. Another way of talking about this is to say growing into Christ's likeness means you spend all of your life getting your life in line with the gospel. You see? And no one gets this perfectly, this side of heaven. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me give you a second example. It's discouragement. So when a person is discouraged or, or depressed, and again, uh, I wanna be clear, I'm not talking about physiological things. When someone is discouraged or, de or maybe depressed, the moralist will say, you must be breaking the rules somewhere, so you need to repent. But on the other hand, our secular culture, the relativists will say, well, you just need to love yourself, accept yourself. You're a good person. Here, let me give you a hug. In other words, it's a self-esteem problem. But assuming, again, assuming there's no physiological uh, basis for this, the gospel says neither of those things is the answer. The gospel leads us to examine ourselves and to say, you know, I'm really discouraged. And if I am, it's probably because something in my life has become more important to me than God. Some kind of pseudo savior, some kind of works righteousness. And so for living the gospel, it leads us to repentance. We, we look beneath the surface. The, the moralist is working on behavior at the top. The relativist is working on emotions at the top. The gospel leads us to say what's underneath. What is the heart's functional trust? There was this uh, woman, now married, kids, uh, many years ago, details changed to protect the innocent, came to a pastor uh, when she was 15. And she was depressed and discouraged because she had a much prettier adopted sister. And so she sat in the office and she just was really down on things. And the pastor said to her, you know, you're a Christian, right? She said, yes. He said, you believe you're going to heaven, don't you? She said, yes. He said, you, you believe that you're adopted into God's family, right? She said, right. She said, but what good is that if no one wants to date me? You, you can laugh because it's kind of humorous. We know she was 15, of course. And the pastor said, you don't wanna be like mean to a 15-year-old. But what the gospel says is, in a case like this, something is more important to you than Jesus, to your happiness. And I bet you many, many of us, if we get honest with ourselves, will recognize that we have all grown up kind of things just like that. Good place for an amen. An uncomfortable, awkward amen. 
See, the gospel addresses our deepest needs. I want to say this. The gospel is not a pat answer. This is not simplistic. This is calling you to go deep and look at your heart. And it's not just the condemnation of moralism, you know, which says to us, feel bad, then buck up. Do the right thing. And it's not the cheap affirmation of relativism. Just get people to accept you. Love yourself. See how wonderful you really are. It says you have to look at the heart. You have to look beneath. Third example, and you're going to hate this one. I'm just telling you ahead of time. Okay, you're going to hate this one, right? Say, I'm going to hate this one. All right, here it goes. What does the gospel say about my money and generosity? Told you you were going to hate it. Now, most churches, when we try to get people to give money, how do we do it? We work on their will. Like directly, we say, you know, if you're a good Christian, you're going to tithe. Or we, we, we'll say, you know, you need to be generous because, you know, that's what the right thing to do is. And, and there's actually a totally liberal, secular uh, version of this, you know, where, where they say, you have so much money and other people have so little money. It's wrong for you to keep your money. They stir up guilt to get money. Well, what is happening here? Can you see these are all appeals to either fear or pride? Well, how does Paul do it? If you go to the letter of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul wants the people he's writing to to give an offering to the poor, but he says this in the letter. Go ahead and read it sometime. He says, I don't want to order you I don't, I don't want this offering to simply be the response to a demand that I make as an apostle. So he doesn't directly pressure the will saying, I'm an apostle and it's your duty to obey me. He actually says, I don't want to order you. He also doesn't pressure emotions, which we often do. He doesn't tell them sad, sad stories about all the suffering in the world, which I think God can use sometimes if they're used appropriately. He doesn't just focus on how much more that they had than these other people. Instead, this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What does he do? He says, you know the grace, and of course they know about the gospel. He is spiritually reminding them that he's bringing the gospel to bear on their hearts, and he uses this powerful image, bringing Jesus' grace and salvation into this realm of money and of wealth, and he says, basically, Jesus Christ's grace was a form of generosity to you. He appeals to them by moving them to think about the gospel. He says, think of his costly grace. Think of what he did for you. Think on this grace until the gospel changes you into a generous person. And I'll just simply say this. If you're irritated right now that I brought this up, it's an indication of how the gospel has not worked in your life yet. If you've already thought of three reasons why pastors always say this stuff anyway, we all know that, why do we have to do that? It's an indication how the gospel has not changed your heart. If you have been blessed by God so richly in your life and yet you are unwilling out of fear or pride or whatever reason you've come up with in your self-centered heart, which is always where we all are, then it's an indication that the gospel has not been working in your heart. Does that make sense? 
And I didn't ask you if you liked it. I said, does it make sense? Well, give me one more example. And this is my marriage. In Ephesians 5, uh, Paul is speaking to spouses, especially to husbands. And most of these people had come from pagan backgrounds and therefore they had a lot of bad attitudes toward marriage. And I don't know if you know this, but in Paul's time, it was very typical for pagan uh, culture for men to, they would have a wife, but they would also very freely, openly, and it was all accepted. They could have mistresses and they could see prostitutes. It was just kind of this double standard. The wife wasn't allowed to be unfaithful. She couldn't go out and have sex with anyone, but husbands could. And they, they saw marriages mainly as like a business relationship. You know, you would marry as well as you could for these external social reasons, and then you got your sexual favors elsewhere. So Paul wants to encourage husbands to be not only sexually faithful, but to cherish and to honor their wives. It's a radical approach to marriage. So what does he do? He does not say, you know, you're not dirty pagans anymore. You need to be pure. You need to be chaste. Stop fooling around. That's not what he says. What does he say? Well, just like he does in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he does not show unloving husbands a moral example. He shows them the gospel. He says, you know what? Jesus was the ultimate spouse to us in the gospel In fact, this is what Ephesians 5.25 says. Husbands, love your wives. You say, how? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're the church. He gave himself for you. Jesus shows sacrificial love toward us, his bride, and he didn't love us because we met all of his needs. He didn't love us because we were always lovely. He loved us in order to make us lovely. See, here's what is happening in all of these cases. Do you see the thread running through all of it? I'm gonna illustrate from just the last two. The solution that Paul, the scriptures offer to stinginess, to a lack of generosity, is a reorientation to Christ's love in the gospel. And because of the gospel, we don't have to worry about money because the cross proves that God loves you. That gives me security. Now we don't have to envy people who have more than I do because Jesus' love and Jesus' salvation is enough for me. See, instead of pressure and guilt to be generous, The gospel does this. The gospel says, why do you have trouble giving your money away? Why are you anxious about it? Why are you afraid of it? It's because you don't realize how loved you are by the God of the universe who gave his only son so that you might live in his family forever. Maybe you don't wanna give because you want some stuff that other people have more than you have. You're envious of them. Maybe you love your money more than you love Jesus. Well, the gospel, Paul says, causes you to look at Jesus' love See, the gospel goes after the root causes of a lack of generosity by changing the heart. And in the same way, a bad marriage is made good by reorienting us to the radical spousal love of Jesus for us in the gospel. See, it's only when you see how much Jesus loves us that we receive the power to stand against lust. Only when you see his love that his love alone is fulfilling, that you will be kept from looking around to other sources of sexual fulfillment because only Jesus can give you what you're looking for. So here's the point. 
What makes you a sexually faithful spouse? What makes you a generous, not a greedy person? What makes you anything else that the Bible commands us to be and to do It is not trying harder or just following the example of Christ. Instead, it's about this, deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and then living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart. See, faith in the gospel restructures your motivation, your identity, your view of the world, and it changes your feelings, your heart. So behavioral compliance to rules, you know, that's never, it's never enough. Let me give you the last thing very quickly. Apply the gospel to your personal forms of idolatry. Now, if you've been around Southwinds very long, you've heard me say before that the, the, the Bible tells us that idolatry is always the ultimate reason we sin and that the secret to life change is always to identify the idols in our hearts because anytime we sin, what we're doing is we're choosing something or someone over God. And this can get confusing because oftentimes idols are good things but we turn them into God things. We make them ultimate things. So how do we change? How do we, how do we work in our hearts? Well, it doesn't matter what the problem is, fear, anger, lust, envy, lack of self-control, addiction, codependency, on and on and on. doesn't matter. What you need is the gospel. Say, I need the gospel. And you may need counseling with the gospel. You may need community with the gospel. You may need accountability with friends who understand the gospel. You, you may need a whole lot of other things, but underneath all of that, all of that, ultimately what you need is the gospel. And friends, that's what we give to people. Not just try harder, not just here's the rules. You know, why can't you live up to them? See, to understand what's going in our hearts, we need to think about idolatry. I wanna give you three things that we do to flesh that out. First of all, we must accept the inevitability of idolatry. Have you ever stopped to think why it is the first of the 10 commandments is about idolatry? Um, That commandment asserts that we will worship and we will worship either the true God or false gods. No third option possible. You will build your life on God or something or someone Else. It's impossible not to do that. Everyone worships something. Everyone has something at the center of their hearts. And whatever that is, if it's not God, it's an idol. See, even when we follow Christ and we, we have started to work on building our lives around God, the default mode of our lives is to go back to our idols. And so we need to begin by just admitting that to ourselves, you know, to ask ourselves the question, where Am I worshiping an idol in my life? Here's a second concept. We must see that idolatry is the core of every sin. Uh, The Bible doesn't see idolatry as one sin among many. We just think it's like in the list, you know, pride, greed, adultery, lying, murder, and idolatry. And again, it it could look like that in the Ten Commandments, but the commandment against idolatry is the first because you never break number two through ten unless you've already broken number one, never. You wouldn't lie unless you're making something an idol. You wouldn't commit adultery or you covet unless you're making something an idol. And so it's true, the sin under all sins and the reason you commit any particular sin always is because of idolatry. You know, um, uh, as a pastor for over 35 years, I have counseled so many people 
who suffered greatly, whether through sickness or loss of some kind. And time after time, I've watched as I've seen some people who walk through these seasons of suffering and they come out on the other side eventually. And it's amazing, they're stronger and they're more in love with Christ. And then there's other people that I've seen and walk through suffering and it destroys them. What was the difference? In every case, those who were destroyed had made something or someone the very center of their lives. And they may have been believers, but that person or that thing what was functionally their savior and deep in their heart, they had made that person or that thing, whatever it was, whoever it was, they had made that more important than Christ. And I'm saying to you, everyone has something besides God deep in their hearts that they're saying that about. It's like, if I have that, I'll be okay. If I don't have that, my life has no meaning. And the gospel is what takes us out of that. That is an idol let me, let me tell you this, if you struggle with a particular sin and you've worked on it and worked on it and worked on it, you've tried and you tried and you tried, you, you find you can't change that behavior, you're probably dealing with an idol. You know, if there are certain things that just all of a sudden explode you into either anger or anxiety or, or maybe you just like crash down into despair, maybe you have any other kind of like over the top emotions, you can't stop. I'm telling you, the reason is you have made an idol out of someone or something and your idol is letting you down. And you may say Jesus is your savior. You may say you believe you're justified by faith in what Jesus has done but there is a part of your life some way, somehow, where that spouse or that child or that possession or that achievement is your righteousness and you're looking to that thing for meaning. And until you're willing to admit that, until you're willing to repent and root that out of your life, that idol, you'll never change. Anytime we struggle in a particular area, look, look for the idol, which is the sin underneath the sin and you'll be amazed at what happens. Here's the last thing. How do we experience change with idolatry? Well, we must replace our idols by rejoicing in Jesus. You know, it's not enough to just say, okay, I have an idol. And what gets your heart to move away from that? And the answer is this. You have to learn to replace idols so they cannot grow back. And you replace them by learning to rejoice in that particular thing Jesus brings you that replaces that idol. Some of you are going, okay, that's, that's the big thing. Well, let me tell you a story. Again, details have been changed. Um, this story is about a woman, but I could tell you the same story many times over about a man. This woman's life was always a wreck, largely because she had made idols out of men. She was always getting swept off her feet by some man who ended up abusing her so she started going to a secular counselor and this counselor said to her, well, what you need is a career so you won't need men to provide for you. You just need your own career that'll give you self-esteem. You'll see you don't need men. Then you can make it in life. But this woman was a follower of Christ and she realized this wasn't true. And she said, you know, I, I figured out my problem wasn't economic. My problem was I didn't feel worthwhile until a man loved me. She was talking to her pastor, and her pastor asked her, well, how did you get past that? She said, Colossians 3. He said, what do you mean? 
she said, well, Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And she said, now when I see a man coming, and I kind of like the way he looks, and I kind of like the way he's looking at me, I like the possibility maybe, maybe he's the man for me. I say at the same time, but you are not my life. Christ is my life. My life is hidden with Christ and God, and that means ultimately I don't really need you. She said, the more I realize the love I'm looking for is in Jesus, the more I rejoice in what Jesus has done for me, the more free I become from thinking that I need a man. And again, this didn't mean she didn't care about men. It meant, it meant that she had put men in their right place. Some of you ladies, you need to put men in the right place. And it's not the first thing you're thinking about. Jesus is first. Jesus is everything. And it freed her to actually enjoy relationships because she wasn't looking at them as a way to get her identity and her, her meaning. See, it's not enough to say, Jesus is my righteousness, if your heart doesn't actually believe it. It's like the difference between audio and video. You know, if you have two things playing and one's audio and one's video, which one are you gonna be looking at? It's a video every time, every time. See, this is really why we do what we do on Sundays. This is why you come here and why you sing. It's why we pray together. It's why you listen to preaching we do all these things because they help us to deepen the sense of the reality of what Jesus has done for us so that that becomes as real to you in your heart as approval, as men, as women, as beauty, as status, as acclaim, whatever it is. And it's not easy, but your heart needs that. Your heart needs that. Will you receive the challenge today? to live out the gospel? Will you begin to go to God and ask him, where are there idols in my heart? God, where am I returning to something that's not Jesus and I'm trusting ultimately in myself instead of in you? And as we do that, and as God's Holy Spirit works, and he does that through his word, and he does that through prayer, and he does that through preaching and worship and life groups, so many ways, we can grow more and more into living out the gospel. Don't you wanna live out the gospel? Don't you wanna live it? The good news that Jesus died for you and your sins are forgiven and you're part of God's family and you're gonna live with God forever. That's good news, amen? And this is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads? Father God, our hearts need the gospel always and every day. We pray that you would help us to continue to grow in our understanding of what the gospel is, its true meaning. We pray, God, that you would move us to share your good news with people who need to know you. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us to live the gospel out every day in every area of our lives. We pray this, Father, for your glory. And Lord, now as your people, we worship you um, through the giving of our tithes and our offering. 
And Lord, we do all these things so that you will be honored among us and so that we will be satisfied in you. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.